You want a man with spirit who is not afraid to fight. A man whose record shows that he will fight for what is right. A loyal man who brings the job a fresh new point of view. Well, it's up to you. It's up to you. It's strictly up to you. Coordinated strike. Welcome back to Coordinated Strike. As always, I'm your host, Joe. I am pumped, ready, locked, and loaded to talk to you about the other side. So today has been an interesting day. Uh, we are looking forward to Gen Con happening at the end of this week or the middle of this week. Uh, the best four days in gaming. I, unfortunately, will not be there. Uh, but there is going to be a ton of toss going on at the convention. So if you're in Indianapolis, you're lucky enough to be going to Gen Con, make sure you check it out. Make sure you play some uh, other side while you're there. Uh, if you're new to the game, get yourself a demo. Uh, a lot of exciting stuff going on at the weird booth uh, and at the weird play area. So definitely a lot of things to experience and try out. Um, wish you all the best if you're going to a tournament there. Uh, and I hope you have an absolutely ton of fun. So today's show, I want to talk about uh, a couple of things uh, as we approach Gen Con, as we get closer to uh, August. Uh, for those that aren't normally uh, in the know about Weird, Weird does a update of most of its games for balance around August, uh, so around mid-year. So they'll do one... Uh, at the beginning of the year in January, and they'll do one uh, about six months later, uh, six to nine months later, actually, in uh, in about August. So this kind of gives uh, everything a chance to be fresh. This marks about the one-year anniversary uh, of the game. Well, not quite the one-year anniversary. We're still about a month and a half short of that. So it's been out for about ten months, uh, and we're going to start seeing um, probably some rad items come through here shortly and that's very very exciting so i want people to get uh get pumped for the arena i also want to have a talk about a little thing i've been working on uh which is basically an open-ended campaign system for the game completely unofficial uh just something i've been kind of messing with for a while it's something i like to do with game systems is look at ways to provide a campaign experience uh, when there isn't an official campaign uh, available. So kind of gives people a framework, gives you something to do with a girl league. So that's going to be the bulk of this episode, is going to be talking about uh, some hopes for the errata and talking about an unofficial campaign system and a little bit of a battle report uh, from my most recent game that you can kind of see on the, uh, the Facebook uh, live feed. So make sure you go check that out. In the interim, let's have a quick break with our sponsors, and we'll get back with this exciting episode. We'd like, like something, something different. different. Sure, boys. Thanks to Minute Rice Mixes, we have pilaf, Chinese, Florentine, and Spanish styles. Pilaf, Florentine. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Back in five minutes. One minute. Minute Rice commercial from 1986. So very much uh, of importance today. As you uh, as you think about what you're doing on this glorious glorious uh, week of Gen Con, so 
let's talk a little bit about what I hope to see in the errata. Uh, I hope to see every faction touch slightly. Uh, some buffs, some nerfs. Um, I'm definitely expecting a rework of the Rhino. Uh, I'm definitely expecting something to happen with uh, Caso Kate, as she is arguably the best commander in two factions, not just one, uh, and has a disproportionate effect on the game in terms of potential card draw. Um, also expecting some tweaks to uh, likely Margaret Bell's distance. It's probably a little bit outside the range without some type of duel or sacrifice. Um, likely expecting some buffs to Jibbering Hordes in general. Um, likely expecting a couple of cleanups in some of the rules around uh, specific units just to kind of tidy things up uh, quite a bit. I think that is going to help immensely. Um, I can also see a few stratagems changing. Um, that is probably something I would definitely see coming down the pipeline. So these are kind of my hopes for the errata uh, on the whole. I'm sure there's some other things that will be addressed that will be surprising. Uh, I think you're going to see some general cleanup. I think you're going to see some of the invincibility of low-cost models cleaned up. Uh, I think you're going to see anything that seems a little too good probably toned back down to where it should be. Uh, I'm expecting it to be a fairly extensive errata, but not an overly heavy-handed. I think you're going to see a couple things, again, like I say, a couple things come up. Uh, a couple of the slightly egregious things come down. But overall, balance, balance within the game isn't too bad. As a whole, uh, you're just going to see the cleanups that's kind of necessary uh, as we've had it in people's hands for a while. Uh, so I'm excited for that. Uh, I'm excited for that as a player, as somebody that's very interested in growing and developing the game itself and the organized play of the game. And I think that you need uh, a solid balance basis uh, to do that. And I think Toss's overall balance has been fairly good. Um, but there have been a few things that I have not uh, liked and have definitely been exploited in ways that just frankly were were not seen initially, uh, which is it to be expected. And this is the beauty of having a little more of a living style rule set where some of these things can be addressed through errata. So my hat's off to Weird for um, keeping the game in check, keeping the game in line, and keeping the game in mind. So a couple of other bits that I am exceedingly excited for. Weird is hiring two more developers. Um, if those jobs are posted on their site, definitely check it out. Uh, but it's very exciting because they're going to be working on the miniatures lines, which include the other side. So definitely some more stuff coming down the pipe uh, as we approach uh, the one year of the game, as we get uh, M3E off the ground and out of weirds here so that its development team can start to focus more on the other side, uh, which is very exciting for me as a player uh, and promoter of the other side. So <coughs> with all of that stated, let's talk about something even more interesting than hopes for errata uh, or those type of things. Let's talk about... Uh, a recent game that I played. It was a two-commander game uh, against King's Empire. I faced off against Margaret Bell. And I faced off against Charles Edmonton. 
And this was a little bit of a thought experiment game where I took a variant of a list that I have been using for a while in Jiring Hordes. And I've talked about the Monster Mash list before. This is a little bit of a variant on King of All Monsters uh, where I took Kormatanji and I took Storm Siren as opposed to the Frenzy. Uh, and the overall design of the list is to utilize the additional hazardous terrain slash covered terrain to really buff up the power and card potential of my two units of striped skulkers. So the list is pretty simple. It is Hormatanji, Storm Siren. It is two units of striped skulkers, one unit of Karkanoi, and two alpha crawlers, each with uh, massive arms over eager and uh, rolling innards. Uh, because I think the de-glory ability into uh, the power that is King's Empire is very strong, as in this particular list you can attempt to mitigate, at least to some extent, the amount of fire teams that you are giving up in a given turn uh, to them, meaning it's very hard, difficult for them to get glory, and when you do have a unit glory, to have the Titan Vomit on it, and it goes away, that can be a little bit disheartening to the opponent, uh, even if you don't do significant damage to that unit. All you've got to do is hit, and you're flipping them from glory. So that's why I like that particular build. Uh, Hormatanji went with three assets. We went with uh, Tidal Wave. Uh, we went with his uh, with his, his his Gibbering Horde specific, which is the Tidal Wave. His uh, We went with Relic of Ancient Malifaux on him and Unnatural Growth because I like uh, having the potential to dish out unshake or shaking tokens when my opponent draws cards. Uh, I also like knowing what cards they are drawing into their hand uh, when it is not being purchased via tactics tokens. So I was excited to have that ability on him. For Storm Siren, we went uh, a Relic of Ancient Malifaux, and we went with uh, a good old-fashioned uh, one stone upgrade for we didn't do toughness we did uh, they'd kill trophies with her so nothing overly amazing there just a solid one uh, oh no we went uh, sorry I went icon of ancient power on her uh, to allow for some token manipulation on my side. So pretty excited for that uh, on the whole. And then I faced off again against Margaret Bell, Charles Edmonton, two units of Royal Rifle Corps, uh, a unit of Borderers, a unit of... Uh, what are they called? Or a unit of Empire Dragoons, Samantha Thrace, uh, brought into the team via Guild Envoy and a King's Hand with uh, a drill, the Soulstone Powered Laser, 
and the heavy machine gun. So, a couple of interesting things there. Um, the Titan King's Hand was a little bit less of a factor because when you have two alphas in a list, you have a lot of answers to a Titan. Uh, so I was able to get on him early with double double alphas and really neuter the effectiveness of that model early in the game uh, and was able to have him totally destroyed by turn three, early in turn three. So he became sort of a non-factor, and then my Titans became a very large factor in the uh, scenario, which our operation was supply cash and then our deployment was killing fields so we had kind of a long deployment uh, within the two commander game uh, this particular game uh, you can see video of the first three turns uh, game ends as an 11 to 10 win for gibbering hordes uh, was able to on the final turn move some of his units and then position my skull, uh, striped skulkers on the left-hand flank uh, that were in terrain, was able to get them up just enough to be outside of melee with his remaining units and within one inch, because we were playing close objectives, of his freshly minted uh, supply cache, which I was able to take uh, for the additional point uh, and win the match. So you can definitely check that out on the Facebook group, uh, the unofficial uh, the other side Facebook group, you should check that out if you're not already a member of it. Uh, I'm a moderator on there, so I'll be happy to get you logged in. Uh, just request service. There's no questions or anything like that. It's just uh, moderator allowance. So just give me a little bit of time and I'll get you on there. Uh, <laughs> so game itself was a lot of fun. Uh, again, I had my left-hand striped skulkers in terrain the bulk of the game in this forest piece and they just went absolutely nuts. Uh, they had incredibly good flips, incredibly, incredibly well-timed uh, flips with their uh, ability. Uh, ambush became quite a big factor to deny my opponent the cheating opportunities as I was able to, through positioning of Storm Siren to maneuver things to have to come into that terrain piece. Uh, that these Stripe Skulkers then just kind of melted as a whole. Uh, to give you an idea of what they did this game, they killed the Dragoons uh, on turn one. No, turn two. They killed the Dragoons off turn two before they had a chance to activate again. Uh, and just owned that corner of the table. Uh, they never lost a fire team. They only lost two models. Uh, that unit was absolutely an MVP, uh, Statistical Anomaly, and just cements my love for Stripe Skulkers in terrain. Now, if you don't have significant, sufficient terrain on the board, then Stripe Skulkers are going to lose a little bit of gusto within the game, but you do have the ability to create those tide pools, and as long as they're touching the tide pool, just a piece of their base... Uh, that fire, their fire teams become absolutely golden uh, and punch well above their stats and can defend well above their stats because of that additional card flip. Uh, it really is a significant advantage 
uh, and you want to make sure that you're remembering and exploiting that rule as much as you possibly can. Uh, as it is really critical for gameplay purposes. <laughs> so, a couple of other things that are of note in this game. And it's, a, it's something that I want to make sure that Ring Horde's players kind of get out of the mindset on. And that is, Relic is very nice. But I think Relic has become a bit too much of a clutch for us as Jibbering Hordes players. And it would be something I would be aware about and be something I would be looking to actively reduce my reliance on. Uh, it's one of those things where probably the Frenzy's interaction with it is something that is going to get looked at. Uh, because it is a strong interaction and probably outside the realm of what was thought of when it was initially created. <coughs> but I will say I do think that there would be some other things that need to be tweaked in order for it to be changed. Uh, and I'm sure we will probably see something along those lines happen if it is going to get tweaked in the uh, forthcoming errata. So couple of other thoughts from the game <coughs> is just how strong um, summoning is in general even if all you're doing is summoning uh, egg clutches from the Karkanoi uh, as an option to allow to fuel the list into glory because uh, as the list glories it really is able to do some significantly more powerful things than when it is non-glory. And I know that seems very trivial, but something in Jimmering Hordes uh, that you have to be very aware of is you do want to try and glory as many things as you can in a safe manner so that you can take advantage of all the additional rules that you get on the glory side of some of these units. Um, they really come to their own on the glory side in Jibbering Hordes, and you do have a lot of different methods to get them to glory because of the survival of the fittest ability, although you are giving up potentially a very significant uh, piece of your army or unit uh, by eating one of the fire teams. That is not a... That is a significant cost in comparison to what other units have to do to glory but you do have more control than a lot of other allegiances. So it is something that is kind of balanced in that way. Um, so I am interested to see what is done, uh, if anything, with that ability. Uh, if it's looked at at all, uh, if it's interaction, a significantly negative interaction uh, that is present currently in one of the operations is addressed. Uh, my hope is that it is. Uh, if that is the case, I will be exceedingly happy uh, with the errata if that is addressed. So let's talk about campaign play. Uh, campaigns are near and dear to my heart. I have played them for a very long time in a variety of systems. I am a huge fan of bringing some narrative elements to your game and to your playgroup uh, if it is something that you and your playgroup enjoy. Or if you're just looking to do something different with your models. Uh, 
have some different impact on the game, have some more meaningful games, those type of things can all be achieved through campaign play. But presently, there is not an official campaign system for the other side. So what I am humbling presenting is... So there isn't currently a official campaign model, so I am presenting to you my unofficial campaign model uh, that has been specifically adapted to take advantage of some of the unique bits and levers that the other side provides as a campaign designer. So I'm presenting a framework. I'm going to present it uh, a couple of different ways uh, so that you can kind of tailor it to your tastes. Uh, we'll go through an example campaign. And all of this I have posted on the Facebook, uh, both at a weird place and the unofficial uh, The Other Side fan page, as well as on the forum themselves in the talk discussion field. So I'm going to go over it a little more in depth here so that you can kind of get the entirety of my thought process and design of the campaign itself. So essentially, when I'm looking at uh, a campaign for the other side, I'm looking to leverage all of the wonderful systems that are already in place for me with the other side's design. With the fact that we have two positive tokens and two negative style tokens uh, that offset each other, we have a lot of little levers that we can pull. Um, additionally, we already have levers for how to handle uh, straight, just uh, just normal damage, uh, damage flips at the start of a game, uh, movements at the start of a game, having units be able to start in a gloried state. Uh, we have the ability to manipulate, to a certain extent, the stats of the model either through the token system or if you want to do a little bit more of a permanent bonus you could do that as well through either assigning a specialized asset creating that or simply giving them a campaign based rule uh, for veteran that says their acting values are plus one these are all little levers that you have as the campaign organizer the campaign designer at your fingertips. So the way that my campaign system works is I like to make and design these for manageable numbers of players. And what I say are manageable numbers of players is I like sets of four people or less. Um, campaigns, if they get on too large of a scale, you have one, a timing issue because it's going to take for a much longer time to resolve more than four people's games against each other in a time frame than it is going to be if you have eight or 16. If you have eight or 16, awesome. But I would recommend breaking those into smaller siloed pieces of the campaign or where they're each running basically an independent campaign instead of wanting run one, you're running four. Uh, because that's a little bit more easy to manage in that four or less camp. And so what this is really built for is to help support that number. And in my experience, some campaigns may start with more people 
but typically the ones that will actually finish the campaign are about four people at most. So when we're looking at this, that is what we're building for. And I like to build with a theme in mind and a location in mind. Meaning I try and either pull from the game or pull from what I think is fun or history. Whatever is appropriate to your game or your setting or what your players are. So if you had, let's say you have just Earthside factions, or just Earthside allegiances where you're at. Totally appropriate to do a theme of a training exercise or a land grab after the forces of, uh, of Malifaux have been thrown out of this particular area. Uh, or you can do it like a training exercise, something like that. Or it could all be pre-London uh, breaching, where you've got these two forces <coughs> coming into contact with each other, vying for supremacy in a particular region. Totally acceptable. Or if it's a Malifaux-based uh, campaign and you don't have any Earthside forces, totally appropriate for these forces to come up against each other. Uh, again, can be a training exercise can be simply a fight for dominance within the region, uh, a fight for resources, for some type of magical object. You can make your campaign about whatever you want to make it about. The biggest thing that you have to decide within this system is how many rounds is this campaign going to be? How long is each round going to last in terms of time frame? And what operation are we playing this round? What deployment are we playing this round? How does it fit into my overall narrative? And what are the stakes? <coughs> Meaning, what happens if I win? And what happens if I lose this particular campaign game? This, this particular round, what are my benefits, what are my losses? What happens if I lose, what happens if I win, um, what happens if I tie? Those are the elements that you kind of want to resolve uh, and make sure that we have clear stakes for, uh, for the players that we are engaging in. And at this point, you can kind of decide how you want your campaign to be designed. You can do uh, a very simple campaign, uh, which is what I'll outline first. It's actually the examples that I give in the, in the quick uh, description of this, which is a linear campaign. So in a linear campaign, we are assessing how to get from point A in our story to the end point of our story, which we'll lovingly call point B. And we're going to determine how many rounds of play it's going to take us to get there. And my recommendation for a round of play is that it is one game for, or it is, in a, if it is two players involved in the campaign, those players would play each other once and the round would conclude. <coughs> that is also my recommendation if you are going to go the campaign in a day model tournament as opposed to a normal tournament where you would do this and it would just be 
after the first round would be round one, the second round of the tournament would be round two, the third round would be round three, and the fourth round would be round four if there were four rounds. But if you're doing a campaign with some buddies or multiple people, let's say you're going with four, then my recommendation is that you would end a round after at least each player has played an additional two other players once in that round. So at least two games have been played. Ideally, you would wait till everyone got a game in. But if you're doing like a slow grow league where you're doing, uh, let's say you're doing a game or you're doing a round in two weeks, that makes it a game a week, which should be an achievable level of play for everyone there. Uh, from a timing standpoint, so that would be my recommendation. Either they play everybody else, or they play at least two other people uh, of themselves, and then the round will conclude. Uh, you will keep you will keep score uh, every single game. Uh, you and what you're looking for is the differential. So it's very similar to the tournament scoring. Uh, so we're looking for the differential, and the differential is going to be max at 8, just as it is in tournament scoring. However, the winner is not going to get a bonus 2. Uh, this is something that's a little different, because the campaign defining or climatic battle is where they're going to get that bonus points from if they win that particular game. And that will give them uh, a bonus there in that particular matchup. Uh, you can adjust it however you wish. That is the base framework of this. <coughs> Typically, we're also going to decide who is our who is our attacker and who is our defender, uh, and that is going to be determined again narratively uh, in a in a variety of ways, or very simply, if it's the second round of the campaign. Whoever has won the previous round uh, can take the, the winning position. Although you may want to also have some rules if you have multiple people uh, that you're playing. If you have two people that come in with the exact same result uh, in terms of win-loss or draw, that there may be a narrative reason why one faction is X, Y, or Z. So we are going to be doing an example campaign called... Uh, the Battle of the Pyramids. So all of this is a build-up to the eventual skirmish between Earthside forces and Malifaux forces in Egypt proper around the pyramids. So we have this Battle, battle of the Pyramids, uh, really cool concept, visual idea for a campaign. <coughs> Where we're going to have this linear campaign that is going to end with us fighting amongst the pyramids for control of Egypt proper. Uh, so this campaign we are going to do in three easy rounds. Our first round we are going to do as a one commander game uh, that is a reconnaissance force and a reconnaissance force um, essentially looking for the enemy while at the same time uh, attempting to booby trap uh, this particular area of land uh, is it's going to be vital for supply and advancement of either of the forces into uh, the area where the where the pyramids are into Giza. So 
This is going to be a set traps operation that we're going to be playing. And we're going to be playing it on killing fields, and we're going to be playing it a one commander size. Uh, because this is in support of a slow grow league. So at the one commander size, uh, we are looking to, again, just have uh, one commander and their script worth of assets and units uh, facing off in this particular game. And this is our first round. Our second round after this is going to be about establishing your base. Uh, so establishing your supply lines so that you're able to either defend Giza or properly attack Giza. And so what are our stakes? What is our stakes in game one that will give us advantage in game two? Well, very simply put, our stakes are the winner of this particular game is going to get uh, a non-commander unit to be in glory. They are going to get uh, a reinforcement token and an inspired token that they're able to place on uh, one of their units that are in play. And they are going to be able to place two pin tokens on units in uh, the opponent, or they have place up to two pin tokens on up to, you know, they have two pin tokens to place on the opposing force, either both on one fire team or both on one unit or one on two units. And the units that they select, those units are going to, one of those units fire teams each are going to suffer a strength three uncheatable hit. So it's going to be like they got harassed or fell into the traps uh, while they were establishing their base. And the bonus reinforcement inspired token show that you had control of the area. Uh, so you're going to be the attacker. It's going to be corners and it's going to be supply cash. So you're going to be able to place your variable markers first. You're going to be able to define and confine your enemy's deployment. Uh, because of your clever placement of your traps in the previous game, and uh, because you got your base established first, essentially, because you controlled the area, you are going to get a bonus tactics token at the beginning of the game. That's only for the first turn uh, that you'll have that bonus tactics token, but you will have that additional tactics token first turn. This will also be a one commander game, but it's going to be a different commander, and a different 25-point list because in our third game, we're going to play two commanders with the full complement of each of those lists so that we have two fully functional uh, forces that come together for a full two-commander game in the last round of our event, uh, of our tournament, or our, our campaign. So what are our stakes in this one? Again, it's going to be Operation Supply Cache, and it is going to be Deployment Corners. Again, filling in some of our narrative weight. So what do you get if you win this? Well, the winner is going to get an additional Tactics Token at the beginning of their turn. Uh, these are at the beginning of the game. These are not cumulative, so if you won both of the missions previously, you will only get one. Um, 
So it's just if you win this round, will you get an additional tactics token in your next game? <coughs> in that following round. Uh, you will also get uh, a non-commander unit in glory. And you will start the game, because you have your base established, you will start the game with two reinforcement tokens and two inspired tokens that you are able to place uh, on any of your units. You'll have the, the full, the full, those four tokens total to be able to dish out. Uh, your opponent, if they only lose by five, are going to get their commander to be in glory, uh, but they will have to place two shaken tokens on amongst their forces. So they'll have two shaken tokens that they'll have to allocate out. Uh, because they've, they've lost, uh, they are confident in their commander's ability, but their morale is definitely shaken having lost their base. Uh, so they are not in great shape where you are in a more, more advantageous position uh, because of what you've done. And then our final game in this narrative campaign, again, a linear campaign, where we're going from A to B, uh, regardless of result, the result doesn't change what we play. Uh, there's another style that I will give you shortly called a branching campaign uh, that does care about who wins each of the round games uh, and will change what game you would play next based on those results. Uh, that's what a branch campaign does. In a pure linear campaign, it doesn't matter who does the results, we're playing uh, this mission next uh, with this setup. It'll just determine who gets, who gets the losing stakes and who gets the winning stakes. So in the third game, we're going to play two commander game. We are going to play a we are going to play on employment confrontation, and we are going to play scavenge because we are fighting over the periods that are strategically important uh, locations, i.e., the objective markers where we need to be able to hold for longer than our opponent uh, in sufficient quantity so that we can claim the strategic area and win Egypt for our side and our cause. And so, at the end of this. The winner of this game is going to get two additional differential points, uh, allowing them to go up to a total of 10 uh, to be able to help determine who the winner is. And that is our very simple campaign system. Uh, you were able to pull a lot of different levers. We just talked about a few that you could pull from the stakes perspective. So I want to talk about a few more. You could give as a stakes bonus a stratagem at the start of the game of a certain cost. You could do some more damage at the start of the game. You could give out pin tokens or shaken tokens, or you can give out more <coughs> more uh, inspired tokens or reinforcement tokens at the beginning of a game if they if they accomplish certain things. Or you could glory units. Uh, you could have it as a as a stakes loss that. If you have a unit in glory at the start of your first turn, that it would de-glory if you lost that preceding battle, as they are obviously not as inspired as they were previously. So you can take advantage and manipulate just these little systems without causing too much of a balance issue. Where I'd get very, skeptical, I'd get very cautious with you is giving too many additional tactics tokens at the start of the game or going too heavy 
on a damage-related ability. What you really want to have is these stakes have about as much impact as a stratagem would uh, on the course of the game. That is really kind of the ideal sweet spot where it keeps it balanced, and you shouldn't have to worry too much about what you're doing uh, if you keep it within the realm of a stratagem. Uh, again, you could even give out a stratagem at the beginning of the game uh, for, this, for the specific stakes. You can, you can kind of play with it, manipulate it, see what you and your friends find fun. You are the general of your own fun. So the other bit that I want to get into is called a branching variation of this campaign. So in a branching variation, uh, very simply put, we're going to do the exact same thing, except we are going to have a separate operation in the round if our result was a tie or if our result was a loss for Earthside forces or a loss for or a win or a loss for uh, Malifaux forces. So we need to have those three results and they each need to have something different about the operation, either different operation or deployment or different stakes would be played for based on the preceding result. So if you had, <coughs> say, an Earthside force uh, taking on a Malifaux force in game one, and the Malifaux force was victorious, and let's say we're doing the same Battle of the Pyramids. Uh, we would go from a set traps into, instead of maybe establishing a base, this would be about uh, trying to kill the opponent's enemies. So we would play a uh, pitched assault in game two on corners. And if the Earthside forces had won, we would be playing supply cash because it would be about Earthside forces trying to uh, establish a dominant base in that area to defend, better defend Giza uh, from the threat of the uh, the Malifaux, from the, the threat of the Malifaux forces. And then if it had been a tie, maybe here you play uh, a scavenge game in round two because you're trying to establish dominance in the strategic point. You were not able, neither side was able to get advantage in that phase, so maybe you go directly to a two-commander game uh, if you ended up tying that first game. So you can play around with your positioning and those type of things in a branch campaign, uh, where if you're just playing a pure linear campaign, regardless of the previous result, uh, the next mission, operation that you play in deployment are going to be the same. In a branch campaign, you have a little bit more freedom. It's going to be a little bit more work, because you've got to create each of those branches, and then branch off of those branches into the following round each and every time. Uh, so it is going to be more work if you go the branching route, but you can create sometimes a deeper narrative or a deeper sense of narrative ownership if you, if you do that. And the system definitely supports both of these options for you. So definitely something I'd like you to check out. Um, take a look at it on Weird Site. Take a look at it on the Facebook page, hit me up, uh, let me know what you think. You can reach me at on Twitter at CheatedFatesJoe, uh, and you can always reach me on the Googles at CheatedFatesJoe at gmail.com. Uh, I look forward to uh, hearing from you all. And uh, remember, when you have a tax token, 
you can make a coordinated strike.